Welcome to Elevens is with me, Danielle Perry, where I ask 11 questions to every single guest over at Brew to find out what makes my tea break companion tick. So my guest today is a singer, songwriter and founding member of dance pop art group Scissor Sisters, who seems as at home collaborating with the likes of Elton John, Mark Ronson and Bright Light, Bright Light as she does DJing on the dance floors of London and New York. A regular presence on our screens and on the airwaves, her late-night radio show Dance Devotion showcases her dedication to disco and all forms of musical oddity. She also plays a glass harmonica, making her a fascinating correspondent and expert on music, fashion and nightlife. Raised in Portland, Oregon after spending time on a legendary San Francisco drag scene, she first moved to New York before conquering the pop world. She's got a cat called Bootsy, testament to her love of funk and weirdness. Her stage name pays homage to her love of sci-fi, robots and the bionic woman. Animatronic, DJ, superstar and diva in a good way. Welcome to Elevenses. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Where are you right now? Are you in London or New York or whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in my my home in Brooklyn, New York, sat at my desk where I do my radio shows. Yeah, I'm just sat at home with a cup of tea and ready to chat. New York is such a... I've only been once, you know, but loved it so, so much. The energy is unreal, isn't it? It is. When you think about it, when you get to know New York, the infrastructure of the city And this tiny, tiny island, the subways, the water system, all of that stuff goes down something like 17 stories underground. So the energy is as above, so below. It's coming up through the ground as much as it is being sort of transmitted into the air. Mm. Just never gets old. The other day I uh, was taking my husband over to a nightclub where we're, we're, doing our first sort of in-person gig. It was a beautiful sunny day. And, you know, just diving into Manhattan over the bridge, it just doesn't get old, that that skyline, you know. I've been here over 20 years and it's still just magic. And of course, Portland, Oregon. I've only seen Portlandia, which I'm sure you think is probably like a terrible edition of what Portland's really like. No, it's totally like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was trying to be polite. <laughs> Except for one thing which bothers me so much tell me it never rains on portlandia and that is not what portland is like it is <laughs> always raining the reason anybody ever should go into that feminist bookstore is to get out of the rain like that should be the gag i don't understand why it's not but that's okay they all clearly only film in the summertime summertime is lovely in portland the rest of the time it's really rainy but you know that's why i do so well in britain i get along i understand while we're speaking of um, places and locations it would be stupid of me and a miss to not sort of launch into our first question which is thinking about a place when are you at your happiest I feel really fortunate that at most times in my life I have had kind of a core in myself of contentedness even when things were really bad I think I knew I think I've always known that those moments were not permanent, Mm. that every moment is not permanent. And um, so I can't really point to a time when I was happiest, except to say kind of right now, even though even though it's not the happiest time in my life, I'm super anxious and and um, the pandemic is is weird and all of that stuff. But uh, yeah, I feel really fortunate that I I am mostly optimistic and uh, mostly content. 
I don't really have a lot of ennui or dread. <laughs> yeah, that's such a nice answer, though, isn't it? To, like, to be able to say that. I mean, it seems from sort of past interviews I've read, your parents instilled an acceptance of all people and all things. So, Do you think that's the same kind of mindset in terms of acceptance of all situations and events? Oh, for sure. This is actually one of your questions, but uh, one of my first real memories is going to visit my grandfather on his deathbed. And that uh, that sort of heavy memory, I don't really remember th the ins and outs of the situation as much as I do the emotion and the grief and the sadness. I had that and then I also had growing up, I had these intense images of suffering through my mom's art because my mom was a, an icon painter. Mm. And so images of martyred saints and crucifixions and, oh, what's that skull that's at the base of the cross? Oh, that's the skull of Adam, the first man. You know, all this really heavy religious symbolism, mm. the sort of notion of badness came along with also the notion of a great deal of plurality. My mother was from the South and she left the South in the 60s because of the political climate and was it a sort of hippie, bohemian type figure. So yeah, I to answer, <laughs> answer your question <laughs> in a very roundabout way. Yeah, I was very much in a household that was all about radical acceptance. Mm, I think that's such a wonderful thing. Like sitting here thinking about it as, as a fairly new parent to like a five-year-old and a one-year-old. And mm. the, the only intention I have is just to show them opportunity and teach them how to live in a peaceful world. Yeah, That's it, right? And I think hopefully if our generation do a good job on that, then the future generations are going to be all right. Yes. I hope. My mother was born in 1935 in Monroe, Louisiana. This is the segregated South. Right. So she remembers growing up with black farm hands and nannies that were mistreated by her parents and she didn't understand why the people who were raising her were better to her than her parents were. She didn't understand why the churches in the parishes that had the beautiful singing were not their churches. She used to uh, sneak her transistor radio into her bedroom to listen to the race stations. Right. And I remember really clearly her bringing me to see the film Mississippi Burning when it came out. I was 11 years old and she took my sister and me to see it. And one of the first scenes is a or shots is a segregated water fountain. And she was like, this is what it's like. You need to understand that this is this is my childhood. You're only one generation mm. away from this. This isn't something that's in the distant past. This is something that's in my lifetime. So she really raised me with this sort of notion of justice and accountability and understanding privilege that I think people are only kind of realizing now. So I feel a little ahead of the game when it came to that. Yeah, all power to your mom. <laughs> yeah, she was she was very cool. She was a really cool lady. She sounds it. She sounds amazing. And she sounds so sort of comfortable in her skin and, you know, in her, in her bones and her soul of what she was and standing tall. It's it's interesting that you say that because my mother was was somebody who she very much followed her heart, but she would never say that she was strong ever. And she carried around a great deal of low self-esteem oh, wow, okay. and internalized self-loathing. So it's interesting. Um, some people march to the beat of their own drum 
to their detriment, mm. to the alienation of others. My mother's great love was painting. And a lot of people didn't understand that. And, and in particular, when you're born in 1935 and you're supposed to be married when she was, when she was 24, and you're supposed to be a homemaker and, you know, why do you want to do this weird art thing? And so there's a, there's a struggle that came along with her wanting to do her own thing. And, and she very much, I think, poured that into her daughters in a way that kind of made us ferociously independent. And, um, mm. and uh, I think I have the self-esteem that my mom never had. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. But she luckily, there was one thing that she knew she was good at, and that was painting. And she used that to channel a lot of her sadness. And it was a form of meditation and, and a form of connection because she made paintings for churches. It was a way to uh, reach out and help others as well. Absolutely. So she, she did good things with, with her art. Yeah, for sure. Well, that leads me so nicely on to the next question, actually. I don't know if it will be one of your, your mother's works, but is there a work of art or music or a book or a film that completely takes your breath away, you know, your favourite piece of art? I, uh, I have a painting that I love at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I have to look it up. Um, and it's a, it's a painting of Joan of Arc by Jules Bastien Lepage. And um, let's see what year he what year he did it, 1879. So um, it is a large canvas of Joan of Arc. It's a fairly naturalistic depiction, actually really realistic sort of depiction of this peasant girl in the foreground who looks shocked. <laughs> and um, it depicts the moments after Joan of Arc was visited by the archangel Michael and Margaret and Catherine, I think. She saw three saints in an apparition. You can see her stool that she was sitting on in the background sort of tipped over. And she is in the foreground on the right side of the painting, if you're looking at it, looking off into the distance. And she's got these bright, bright blue eyes. She looks like a girl that you would see on the street. She looks like Joan of Arc was 13 or 14, something like that, when she had this vision. Mm. It's so beautiful because it, it communicates what she's just seen, what she's just been told. And it captures the moment after she's been given this mission from heaven and told that she has to, you know, leave her home in the country and go lead an army to liberate France. <laughs> yeah, big ask. <laughs> so she, it, it's as though she's sort of contemplating what she has to do. Looking off, her home is behind her, so she's looking off into the distance, obviously into the implied, you know, the countryside of France and being like, uh, uh, what, what? <laughs> and uh, it just communicates so much. So it's one of those that I always stop and stare at and am in awe of. I go and visit it whenever I go to the Met. And I've had a couple of conversations with other people who are there who come and look at the painting mm -hmm. and don't know what it's about. And, you know, so because I do have you have those great conversations with people and those fun sort of connections with your fellow yeah, sure. art enthusiasts. And it's just beautiful. And I, I think, you know, I've always connected with the story of Joan of Arc. So, yeah, it's just one of those that is 
multifaceted in its beauty and just so crazy, crazy good. I really am a big fan of um, revisiting art sort of through your life at different stages. I do the same, but when I, my best friend lives in Barcelona, which is a great thing, but also a shame. It's, you know, it's a bit far away. But every time I go see the Sagrada Familia, you know, the beautiful church out there that God... Oh, get out of here, yeah. Every time I go back, there's more built from his original design. I just, I love that. That would be number two on my list. The first time I went to Sagrada Familia, I spent like three hours in tears. I mean, I'm just like, what is going on? Yeah. And you feel like you're inside Gaudi's brain. For sure. <laughs> you know, you're in, you're not only are you inside his his vision of beauty, but you're inside the process of him yeah. figuring out how to make this insane tribute. Yeah, it's pretty heady, isn't it? Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, I walked up that tiny little spiral staircase right to the top. It didn't do me any good. It's way too high and way too claustrophobic. But it's a nice little link into my third question, which is what scares you, animatronic? <laughs> <laughs> the, in the biggest sense that humanity will do itself in before it truly figures out how to be human, I suppose that's mm-hmm. the biggest fear. It feels kind of heavy on that right now, doesn't it? It feels like the COP meeting they just had and climate crisis and then the pandemic and politics around the world. and Yeah. Yeah, it feels unsteady, doesn't it? It's quite an anxious time. It does. It feels like we're teetering on a precipice. Yeah, the only solace I find is in <laughs> getting together with friends and dancing. The only thing I can think to remedy it mm. besides action. But yeah. Sometimes it feels like yelling into a void. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We're dancing. It's that that ultimate sort of letting go, isn't it? Yeah. When I was younger, I found that hard. My best friend, she said to me, you just got to move whatever you want to move and not overthink it. Did you always have that in you? Did you always have that freedom? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I was a total ham when I was a kid. (laughs) And I have an older sister, two years older. We're born within a week of each other, so our birthdays are right around the same time. Mm. And my mother used to say she never knew how many people were actually in the bathroom when my sister and I were in there together <laughs> uh, because it was always all kinds of voices and accents. And we were obsessed with The Muppet Show, so my sister was totally Kermit and I was totally Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> this is an excellent character to base yourself on. <laughs> Yeah, she's a touchstone. She's an excellent body-positive, glamorous role model. I love that. Animatronic, tell me about an item of clothing, past or present, I suppose, that has the the power to change your mood, something you couldn't be without. A hat, shoes, whatever. Wigs. Wigs. Nice. 100% wigs. Changing the hair of whatever you've got on will completely change, yeah, It'll take it from formal to casual to sexy to, you know, coy and back again. So, yeah, wigs and hair pieces, number one. I completely, I completely transformed and (laughs) the sort of trajectory of what I wanted to do in life kind of changed when drag entered my life and I really embraced it and started experimenting with different ways of of looking and this was you know this was heavily inspired by the club kids of New York and girls in Russ Meyer films <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and Betty Page and people like that and that was something that immediately changed how I 
walked around and expressed myself and did myself up for a night out and how I performed and my whole confidence, really. And I read that some nights that you went out were sort of almost like themed nights, like industrial night or something like that. Oh, yeah, industrial design night. That was really fun. Yeah. That was really stupid. <laughs> what did you go with in the end? I, uh, I, I had a character named Harsha who was a... <laughs> performance artist from Prague whose subject matter was the mundane and (laughs) she um, came on stage to a song by Einstutzende Neubauten and I made a factory out of a shoebox and two toilet rolls and then smoked a cigarette like blew smoke out of the stacks of the factory. It was really <laughs> stupid. <laughs> but a good attention to detail. I love that. Yeah. So that was at T-Shack um, back, in the, back in San Francisco. There were always theme nights. And some nights were very straightforward. It would be like Prince Night or Bjork Night. And then other nights were... Yeah, industrial design night or <laughs> Helmut Newton takes a ride down the lost highway. That was a fun <laughs> night. That was basically David Lynch night. But yeah, but a little bit more glamorous. Amazing. Yeah, it was fun. You have a love of robots too, right? Where did that start? Yeah, obsessed. Um, it started with Star Wars, which was the first film I remember seeing in the theater right around age three, not even age three. And um, I remember really clearly thinking that C-3PO was a lot like my dad. <laughs> and um, we would joke that he was kind of like him and kind of like uptight and fastidious and persnickety and super gay. And, um, you know, that era growing up was an era of just sci-fi explosion. On TV, there was Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. And I really credit the Cylons with kind of a big part of my aesthetic love because they were always filmed in that like disco star filter. Uh-huh. So they came in and they're like, and you know, they're like, you know, the like glints of stars off their metal and the, the whoosh of that, you know, LED light going on and the vocoder voice and everything. I mean, I, you know, I know Daft Punk was exactly the same. So it was informed a generation. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I grew up loving them. And then um, when I was in college, me and my girlfriend, Abby, were really into anything that was just like super, super 70s. And right around this time, the Sci-Fi Channel started airing reruns of The Bionic Woman on TV. And that fulfilled my sort of 70s, dark, wood-paneled, <laughs> naugahyde love. And then, of course, there was, you know, the central figure of the cyborg lady who's, my goodness, she's so strong. <laughs> and that sort of, you know, 70s feminist kind of thing. Oh. That was my cat. Because <laughs> Bootsy's trying to get attention to um, to um, let me to let him out. Um, hilarious. Yeah, so the, the Bionic Woman became sort of this uh, ridiculous muse and messiah character. And I wrote a zine about Jamie Summers turning my love of <laughs> the Bionic Woman into a religion called Bionic Love. This is getting so long-winded, but um, yeah, I've always loved robots, and it kind of parlayed into this love of cyborgs and the notion of transhumanism, which I find fascinating and mind-blowing. I think you just persuaded me to like sci-fi. 
No one's been able to do it in my lifetime, but maybe now through a different lens, I might appreciate it more. Well, I mean, honestly, we've entered a time where I don't even really think you need to read sci-fi to have your mind totally blown. I mean, people are making robots out of, you know, strands of DNA and making cells that could instead of build buildings, they could grow buildings. You know, there's all this technology right now that's being worked on that is truly, truly mind-blowing. I mean, 3D printing organs is something people are actually working on. Um, that is that is fiction enough. It seems fiction enough. It's totally mind-blowing. It is massively mind-blowing. I can't think about it too long. <laughs> Just go diving into the TED Talks and get your mind blown. <laughs> are you cool for me to carry on? Mm. Yes, Bootsy has decided to leave, and he has, as most cats do, a cardboard fetish. And so there was a big box lying in here that he had to he had to knock over. Classic cats. <laughs> On to the next question, which is, who or what has been your biggest inspiration, would you say? We've listed a few so far, but is there one that completely stands out to you? Well, I mean, to put it in a blanket way, it would be the LGBTQIA plus, 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 plus community. Mm -hmm. um, so much of my inspiration and passion comes from the, the act of people getting together to both kind of make their own world and escape the outside world and to, to create something that resembles the utopia of their, of their own creation. So yeah, so yeah, always when I think of, um, Things that inspire me, disco music and Vogue and um, Wizards. It's all, it's all queer. <laughs> yeah, it's all great though, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sitting here just smiling, you know, it's all just great. Yeah. Those are my people, you know, we're, um, uh, yeah. Who amongst that though is your best friend? I, my best friend in the world is my husband, Seth Kirby, who's, who's the best person I've ever met. Mm. Um, yeah, but I, I am really, really fortunate to have friends who I consider family. My housemate, Corey, who lives in the flat below us, um, I've known for 25 years. And after I record this, I'm going over to, to help my best girlfriend, Christy, paint her new apartment that she just bought. Oh, nice. Um, so I have really, really close friends, and I'm very, very thankful. But I'm also extremely grateful and privileged to spend my life with the most quality human being I've ever met. And I'm really, really thankful to have a spouse who is just so he improves the quality of everything that I do. And that's a that's a really uh, powerful person to have in your corner. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, really nice. What piece of advice would you give your younger self looking back? <laughs> um probably to 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 calm down a little bit to to quiet down um and to to put in the work to remember that it's not all supposed to come naturally and the work is worth it all right okay well do you feel like you get distracted from work then oh totally and i can procrastinate for sure mm -hmm. i mean i i think i i do have a very good work life balance but i I definitely am the last one to leave the party. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Luckily, Seth 
My husband is too. Oh, that's good. Doesn't like to miss out. Yeah, that's good. We're talking about like procrastination and stuff. I would say that's certainly one of my most frustrating qualities. It frustrates me, let alone my husband and anyone around me as well. But what would you say your worst quality was? Would it be that? Yeah. I will do what I call procrastinating, which I'm not doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm doing something constructive. Mm -hmm. So I trick myself into feeling <laughs> like I'm getting something done. <laughs> so it's not full blown like I'm just sitting or, or, you know, playing a video game. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am doing something. I'm just not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'd say I'm not very good at relaxing as well. I just find it like you say, like sitting down playing a video game. I'm terrible for stuff like that. I'm just like jittery, like mm. can't quite handle it. I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at that. I'm a I'm kind of a human cat in that way. Hard relate to uh, the cat on Red Dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued by this next question for you. Animatronic, do you have a recurring dream? I do. I have a, I have a few. And um, I have had uh, a few that seem to manifest at certain times in my life. When things were really crazy with Scissor Sisters, I would have recurring dreams about being on a roller coaster and not being able to get off. And one was really intense where it was, it was like a glass case. Have you ever seen those... Um, I don't know, they're kinetic sculptures and there's a series of balls, like the balls that are in a pinball machine and gears and pulleys and little tracks that they go down and you can follow a ball and it goes down these sort of, it seems like a very American phenomenon. But I basically had a dream once where I was in a roller coaster of one and I was strapped into a seat that was jointed and it changed. You would go from sitting to lying and it would it would feed you through this sort of series of runs and people were watching outside the glass case. That was a that was a really weird dream. Wow. And um, I also have a recurring dream about being inside houses, being inside somebody's house. The house will change, but sometimes I'm alone and sometimes I'm with somebody else and we are creepy crawling around somebody's house and they're not home and we're not supposed to be there. <laughs> and then sometimes they come home and we have to get out. So those are my recurring dreams. Even though they're kind of um, anxiety-inducing sometimes. <laughs> totally anxiety dreams. They're kind of weirdly comforting to go back to. Do you get that or are they still just 100% anxiety the, the ride dreams, I've had several dreams where it's a water slide or I'm in a car and it's this weird freeway sort of roller coaster thing. So those can be really annoying mm. because I'll actually feel... You know when you go over a roller coaster, the high part, and you kind of lose your your diaphragm and you get that sort of loss of G-force, whatever that thing is, your stomach drops? Mm -hmm. I'll get that in the dream and anticipate it and like, oh, here comes another one. And it's actually really, really anxiety-inducing. So those ones aren't so fun, but the house ones are fun because it's fun to look around. <laughs> Was it really, you know, when Scissor Sisters were, I mean, you were going all over the world when you have seen you headline festivals. And I mean, you must have just been exhausted, but thrilled at the same time. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you have fond memories of that time? I do. I do. Um, yes, it's it's all of those things. And it's also very, it can be very shocking and destabilizing because you don't really have any notion of oh, wow, this is, things are really happening. This is really successful. You're just like going and going and going and going. Um, I mean, David Bowie described it as being like 
Groundhog Day. You know, you get on an airplane and you go to a hotel and you wake up and you're like, where am I? And it's like, you're in Belgium. And you look out the window and you're like, hello. Send me my day sheet. Yeah. So <laughs> it is amazing and exhilarating and fun and exhausting and destabilizing and dehumanizing. And <laughs> it's all of these things all at once, which is wild. Yeah. But I loved it. It was the ride of a lifetime for sure. And the music, I mean, it's still played all the time on radio, which is great. So, yeah, it's aged beautifully. Thank goodness. <laughs> Classic was a word that we probably overuse, and I still use it. I think I overuse it on my radio show, but um, that was the word. We were going for classic sounds, and we wanted to create things that would sound good years to come and were obviously inspired by things from our past that were of quality. <laughs> um, you said that you were just going to work through a new piece at the start of our conversation. I was going to ask you what you're up to now and what the next year has in store for you. I have a, I have a, an ongoing sort of research project that I'm working on uh, that I'm not fully at liberty to divulge quite yet, but it's been over a year in the making. Um, but it, it exercises my love of history big time. And I'm really excited about it. And um, I have a, <laughs> actually have a song coming out with um, an artist named Eve Thomas coming out on the 7th of December. He asked me to collaborate with him on a cute little Chicago-style dance tune. Um, so that's coming out. And um, yeah, coming up, my, my husband and I have our first, our first night back with our, our family for this, this night called Wet Noise, which is a all disco funk party so it's all classic 70s and 80s disco and funk and uh, we have a new home it's our first first time back in person since the pandemic so mm. oh, it's gonna be emotional i know yeah i'm gonna be crying behind my mask so we come to our last question which um if you'd be so kind is to say or discuss even not just to say that sounds a bit formal um what do you think your biggest life lesson has been um, that's a good question. Um, I, th I th guess I think my, mm, my largest life lesson is to, uh, rise up and see it from above. That's my biggest life lesson to, uh, know that you are, I am part of a, part of a, we part of a greater, I part of a larger, a larger thing. And that's the true service. That's what one ought to be in service to, at least as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. I really, truly appreciate it. And I might see you in a Sagrada Familia one day. I'll come say hi. Oh, yes, definitely. Take it easy. Thank you. The lovely and the wonderful animatronic. Loved that chat. Really, really good fun. If you enjoyed the show, please do let everyone know. You can rate and subscribe and join me, Danielle Perry, again for Elevenses. Now, next week, I'm having a week off. I'm moving house, currently surrounded by boxes, total chaos. But when I return, I'll be joined by the actors Michael Sheen and Natalie Emmanuel. And we'll be having Elevenses on the last train to Christmas. Join me then.